Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to The Art Detective with me, Dr. Yanina Ramirez. I'm an Oxford art historian, a broadcaster and a writer. And I'm your chief investigator of images. Happy day today for me. I'm joined by dear friend, drinking buddy, <laughs> <laughs> Rebecca Redil. And I, uh, how can I describe you? You are so many things. You are a writer, a former television producer, and you're doing your PhD. You're completing it at the moment, aren't you, at Royal Holloway? I am indeed, yes. But you also blog, you're amazing on Twitter, you're, you're, you pop up on my screens all the time. It's a diverse life you lead, isn't it? <laughs> well, <laughs> interesting. Interesting life. But, you, but we're here today because I asked you to come in. You've written this wonderful book, 1666. And full title? 1666, Plague, War and Hellfire. But I promise it's more cheerful than it sounds. <laughs> a bit. A know, bit it does sound rather depressing, the three big ones. Yeah, well, hit <laughs> with them all. Uh, but it's a great book. And um, and so your research mainly is on, on 17th century, a particular around that pivotal cataclysmic year, 1666. So much happened then, didn't it? Yeah. Charles II was restored to the throne in 1660. Everything was going great for a few years. And then, bam, um, it all kind of... <laughs> fell apart. Um, England went to war with the Dutch, who were this huge maritime nation at the time, and the plague hit the capital city. And then obviously, we know in 1666, the Great Fire of London kind of, you know, was the last of these awful things to happen. Actually, that's a lie. It wasn't the last. There was the raid raid on the Medway in 1667 as well. Oh, God. So yeah, it it sort of was a very traumatic year, particularly for London. Um, And one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, because I'm a gothy medievalist who loves sort of these images of memento mori and suffering and pain. We're doing plague. Um, And we've got a couple of plague images that we're going to talk about. But um, we're going to talk about 1666 at length, uh, 6566. But you've brought along another image, which I recognise from your book. Um, Tell me a bit about this one we're looking at. It's an image that appeared on um, a pamphlet written by Thomas Decker in 1625. Um, It was published by a London um, publisher called John Trundle. um, And it shows a skeleton kind of astride four coffins. um, And you can see devastation all around this skeleton. And people are fleeing out of London. People are dead on... um, Probably looks a bit like hay bales. It does look like a haystack, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah, there's coffins everywhere. And then you can see the city of London in the background and above that, a big storm cloud just to add to the atmosphere. Um, and written on 
the image or the words, Lord have mercy on London. I follow, as in the skeleton, we fly, the people running away. We die, the people that are dead. And um, then just, you know, to drum home the devastation, keep out at the end. Um, so this appeared during a plague, which was actually the biggest plague to that point, uh, up until that point um, in 1625. Um, and this was kind of... Um, tapping into this um, lust, I suppose, for these types of images and um, to kind of visualise the chaos that um, so many people had experienced in London. But I just think it's a really exciting image because it really does show the um, the fear that would have been rife within the city at that time. And it's a printed image. That's something we should also probably mention. It's going to be on a leaflet. Is this a leaflet then that's... Um, being given out for, as you suggest, sort of like this almost sort of gory titillation of the of the scene, or the fact that it says "keep out" is it actually a practical, <laughs> instructive manual? <laughs> it's 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 many many things, and the fact that um, it appeared on a pamphlet by Thomas Decker is interesting because actually, what you and obviously we'll come back to the Great Plague of sixteen sixty five, but the difference between um, the literature in 1665, and this could just be a coincidence, the people that were alive at the time, but Thomas Decker was quite satirical. So he and people like Ben jo- uh, Johnson in um, during the earlier plagues in the 16, 1603, 1604, etc., they wrote satirical pieces of work about the plague. Um, Thomas Decker, in, an, in another pamphlet, actually said that laughter would be a good... Um, remedy to plague, oh, which wow. I think is quite—it's quite nice actually, because you—if you think about awful events um, that happen in the world, what people often want is just to be cheered up a little bit, and I guess that's what they were doing with the satire. Ben Johnson did a similar thing in a play called *The Alchemist* that was um, released um, in the early 1600s. His daughter actually. Um, uh, sorry, son died from plague. Um, so that's the mood is very different in the the early seventeenth century. Although obviously the consequences of plague are, are, are very similar. So we can see it as satire. That's really really interesting. So um, I mean, it's it's obviously attempting to set it within a recognisable landscape. You can see major monuments from London in the background, but. In terms of the central figure, that skeleton is very dramatic, but in a way it is quite funny. It it is. I I mean, the pamphlet was by a a satirical writer, but also, you know, he's famous for having written many, many plague pamphlets as well. But there is a warning there as well. It's, It's This was a deeply religious society, so implicit in anything like this is the fear of of um holy retributions for for sins that people have um committed and it's it's part of that as well that you know this is this is god's punishment in a way and that's a theme that we see throughout the 17th century as well that death is is here to take away those that um may have sinned or as a, a kind of punishment i suppose and is that what's going on on this this far right corner because you've got the people fleeing and they look like they're fleeing into weapons or some sort of obstruction there. Um, Is it almost that they're between a rock and a hard place, you know, that they're between war and plague almost? (laughs) Yeah, well, they they want to leave the city, but, um, I mean, obviously we know that that plague, it says there, I follow, um, we fly, and plague will be will be following them and we know that whenever there's an outbreak in the capital city it does tend to flow out of the capital to all of the cities that are connected through um roadways and um also port port cities as well so leaving the city obviously would have increased somebody's chances of remaining alive but not necessarily mm. and 
let's just be a bit explicit about what we're talking about in terms of plague. Are we talking bubonic plague? Is this rat-carried plague? Oh, that's the big question. <laughs> <laughs> I've said, I've answered this before, and actually, I'm going to stick with it. If anybody tells you a hundred percent that they know exactly what the plague was in the 17th century. Don't believe them because we cannot know with a hundred percent certainty. There've been there have been some really amazing discoveries during um, excavations at the new Crossrail site at Liverpool Street. So they uncovered many many skeletons and um, they they found some skeletons that looked as though they'd been um, buried in a well they were they were buried in a mass grave. So they extracted um, they removed some of the teeth from these skeletons because I mean I'm not a scientist so. Um, <laughs> People listening will probably be like, no, she's wrong. But uh, they extracted the DNA, um, mitochondrial very DNA. Very good, very good. See, I know that. Oh, well, <laughs> biology A-level, I know. <laughs> there you go. I must be right. <laughs> yeah. um, and they found the presence of Yersinia pestis, which is the plague bacterium, um, within these skeletons. Gosh, so how exciting. It is really exciting. But still, there are, I mean, I don't, I'm definitely not downplaying the amazing discovery that, that this is. It shows that people buried in a mass pit in the 17th century had Yersinia pestis in their system. Was that the thing that killed them? Did everybody have Yersinia pestis? Was that the cause of all plague? Who knows? Um, I personally, and this is an opinion subscribed to the mainstream view, that it was bubonic plague predominantly, um, with pneumonic plague as well. And the bubonic plague is spread usually by um, rats, uh, rodents, and, well, fleas on rodents, and then the fleas, once they've had their fill of the rodents or the rodents have died, they jump onto um, humans then and suck their blood. But as they're doing that, they, they find when fleas have Yersinia pestis, when they, ha they have this bacterium, it's hard for them to actually suck blood out of hosts. Oh, right. Um, so it encourages... Um, I hope you're not having your dinner, anybody. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> it's actually really, really gross. So what what it does, it, it encourages the flea to gag, I suppose, and it regurgitates this bacterium into the um, the bite the wound, bite and then the toxins infiltrate the body, and the, you know, then the person is infected. I did not know that. It is disgusting yeah. and interesting. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, so so that's that's really interesting. So we, so we're looking at a selection of possible bubonics, plague that's infecting, but it's it's very con, it's very contagious, um, and it's cross in a place like London, it's easy to contaminate because people are living in close proximity. Is it? Um, I mean, what we see in medieval images of the Black Death, for example, is that it's indiscriminate. It attacks everybody across all the classes. Is that what we see in London or is it more localised? Do we see particular areas being worse hit than others? Again, another really good question. I think if you, if all things were equal, it could attack anybody. But poverty and um, the concentration of houses in certain areas does tend to um, mean that, that plague during the 17th century and indeed before that point, um, tends to affect the poorer people or those living in the very, very um, tightly packed urban areas. And this does change actually throughout the century. So in 1665, what we see is that um, 
the plague starts in St Giles in the fee- uh, fields and spreads around outside of the city. But because well, what we're looking at in this image is pre- presumably on the outskirts. You know, there's the suggestion of countryside, of haystacks, all the rest of it. So, so this is out on the outskirts, isn't it? Yeah, this is showing where people are leaving. They've tried to flee the city. Mm. But actually, during the sixteen, the early 1600s, it was actually places... Well, I mean, we're in Southwark right now. It was places um, like Southwark that were, that were affected more than um, other places. In fact, going back to Thomas Decker and um, also Ben Johnson, they actually write explicitly about how actually... Within the city of London, so this is the walled area with it, you know, the main part of the metropolis, um, it's actually not too bad. People aren't really being affected by plague so much. It's play, it's these urban areas um, where people are more affected. The other, the other factor, um, which I find really interesting, and this is based, so I will give due credit, this is based on um, research by Professor Justin Champion, is that... Um, throughout the 17th century, men, I'm, I mean, the, the margins here are, are tiny but important, men tend to die more than women from plague. Um, but weirdly, in 1665, that's reversed. Ever so subtly, but that's that's reversed. Now, we don't know why, you know, why this happens, whether, and we'll probably speak about um, the roles that women had um, potentially during the plague, but whether this is because more women were, were um, becoming nurses and mm, um, having contact with prevalent, infected people, yeah. um, or whether it's because women were staying in the home a bit more and they were, you know, more likely to contract plague, or whether it's because um, there was a greater number of men fleeing the city. We, we don't know. There's a range of, of theories, but um, but that's the, that's the the fact really. And when I say um, these margins um, are tiny, they really are. So in 1665. It was 168 more people, uh, women died than men um, during that plague. Out of roughly how many in total then? In total, according to the rec- uh, the, the bills of mortality, there were 60, oh, right, 68,500 and I think 96. Good grief. It could be 86, but it's, you know, around 69,000. But... Um, we actually think that there was probably around 100,000 people that died from plague in London um, Yes, because, time. I mean, there'll be unrecorded, there'll be all, all sorts of things where the open yeah. pits were just used. Is that, it was... Well, yeah, there's actually a really um, heartbreaking um, snippet of a story that is within a pamphlet written by a very cheerful man named Thomas Vincent who wrote a pamphlet called God's Ch- Terrible Voice. Um, when I say cheerful, I'm being ironic. <laughs> but he he wrote about seeing a woman carrying what he believed was the final child in her family within a tiny coffin and walking towards the new churchyard, which the new churchyard, as we, well, you may or may not know, is the site that was excavated during the Crossrail excavations, Mm. um, Liverpool Street. And he said he saw this woman doing that. So, yes, there would have been burials taking place of um, children that perhaps hadn't been baptised, but also people, non-conformists and people that didn't want to be buried within the church and um, that kind of thing. But we also have a a situation, presumably, of uh, overcrowding within cemeteries. Um, 
I mean, that's something we're going to go on to. Should we look at our next image? Because that really walks us through yeah. what's happening. So we've got 25. I think the thing to take away, I, I mean, that image is, is powerful. It's dramatic. It, it leaves an echo. You chose it for your book, presumably for those reasons. Yeah. Yeah. I just think, I mean, aesthetically, it's quite it's quite a, a cool image, really, that skeleton on top of coffins. But it does kind of summarise it's, that's the plague image. I didn't choose a plague doctor because I haven't actually found any evidence and someone, you know, people might disagree with me that there were plague doctors wearing those beaked masks within um, London or indeed anywhere else in England in um, the 17th century. So, How interesting. So, yeah, we, we might think of that that frightful image of the sort yeah. of beaked nose. And, but, yeah, so but yeah, I think the skeleton's just as powerful. <laughs> I think so, I think so. But so, but the thing to take away, I suppose, is this idea that plague repeats, uh, there aren't single instances, and there are constant relapses. And when it comes, in the sort of strength it did in 1625, it's very dramatic, it moves very quickly. Um, and then, uh, do we have repeated plagues between then and 65, or is this the next big one? No, there's an outbreak in um, 16... Th- the other thing to say, actually, really quickly, um, is that... Um, in 1625, the plague broke out just after the death of James I and the Sixth of Scotland, and also the plague broke out in 1603, just after the death of Elizabeth. And this did not pass the public by. <laughs> I mean, wow. they, they did attach, um, um, you know, think of this as a kind of omen. So yes, there was um, 16... Hang on, an omen then of the downfall of Protestant rulers, or no, just a, an omen that the, the the monarch has has died, so the monarch will take swathes of people with them. <laughs> Wow, like an army. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. It's I like know. the Valkyries. <laughs> <laughs> I love thinking of Elizabeth like that. That's great. <laughs> oh, no, but of course, so there's uh, there's going to be symbolism attached to all elements of the plague, aren't there? There's yeah. Religious symbolism as, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that people have sinned, that they're being punished for sin, or that you know, there's something corrupt in the city. Um, so, so there were other further outbreaks, but they sort of coincide with these big events. <laughs> yeah, but the other ones, the other ones, there was one in um, 1736. Um, there were outbreaks within, um, you know, other areas outside of London. So, um, my own hometown of Chester, um, there was an outbreak there in the 1640s and 50s as well. But also, plague was endemic, so mm. there were cases every single year. Mm. Absolutely, the I mean that's the thing. I think people uh, looking back across history assume that the big ones is all that happens. No, there's constant threat of of plague, uh, of fever, of, of things that will wipe through a community and and cause complete devastation. Um, but 65 is big, isn't it? Why is 65 such an important plague? It, well, it's important in hindsight because it's the last one, the mm. last great outbreak. And before 1665, the Great Plague had been, the, the title The Great Plague had been attached to 1603 and also 1625 as well. Um, but actually, in terms of numbers, um, it probably took the most amount of lives. Proportionally, perhaps not, though, because 1603, we think, was probably a bit more deadly. Um, but, uh, yeah, there was estimates put the ca- uh, population of the capital at the time in 1665 at around 450 to 500,000 and it took 100,000 people. Good grief, a quarter, one in four. I mean, that is, that's almost black death proportions. Yeah. It's, yeah, I mean, it's part of the same pandemic as well, by the way. It's still, mm. it's still this black death pandemic. It's the last stages of this. But what I always try to remind people is that, yes, there was, you know, one in four people died, 
but some people survived as well. So, the, you know, the, the numbers aren't one in four suffered plague. The numbers are greater than that. And actually, those that didn't suffer plague would have known people that died from plague as well. So it affected everybody. Well, this is it. It's about sensibilities changing as well, isn't it? And uh, what we see um, you know, after the after the 14th century black death is that there's this this sort of memento mori there's a real fascination with death with with the omnipresence of death and we get wonderful uh, cadaver tombs coming in where mm. you, you see people memorialized with bones and worms wriggling around inside them and all the rest of it and it's almost like there is an emotional um, change in the climb in in the population because people are, are suffering yeah. they've all known death and they've seen it and they've been affected by it do we see a similar thing happening from 65 yeah we do we see people feeling um very they they begin to assess their own lives mm. um, well i mean not everybody but there there are some high profile writers that that write about how these events, and they do tie the events, and this is why I include all three in my book. Yeah. <laughs> but they do tie um, the Anglo-Dutch War, the Great Fire of London, and the Great Plague together as three things that were punishments for a variety of sins, depending on who you were and what your beliefs were. It could be that you were being punished for the regicide of Charles I. It could be that London was being punished for the um, licentious court of Charles II. It could be a variety of reasons, but at the heart of all of them was this idea that London was being punished and people had done something wrong. And there was a genuine feeling of guilt as well. I mean, you find this in um, John Evelyn's diaries. You find it in Samuel Pepys's diaries to an extent. But they're always kind of like... <laughs> He's slightly less guilty and more yeah, interested I mean, in shoes. He lived for the now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> but... Uh, it does shift the feeling towards the court of Charles II as well, because, of course, Charles II fled the capital city um, when the number of plague dead um, reached a, a level that was scary, really. Um, so he abandoned the city, so there's a sense in which you know, he's running off the field, isn't he? But yeah, and also the city of London had always been this this place beyond monar well, direct monarchical control. It was controlled by the livery companies, the aldermen, the mayor as well. So it's an, it, there's a really interesting dynamic, and this is beyond the scope of um, talking about plague, really, but there's a very interesting dynamic um, between the City of London and the sitting monarch during the 17th century. But this is potentially why Charles II and his brother, James the Duke of York, were so active and made sure people were aware that they were active during the Great Fire of London because they wanted to be seen to be saving people and saving that city because they could potentially be accused of having not done that during the plague. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Golly, gosh. I mean, there's so many different layers to this. There's yeah. the involvement of the church, presumably, as well, and we have to bring in all that political aspect. Um, the thing we were sat in front of at the moment was the original image you wanted to talk about. Um, I find it utterly fascinating. Do you tell me what we're looking at. This is part of a broadsheet and it was created by John Dunstall, who is described um, in records as being a school teacher. He lived by the Strand and he had made a number of etches and um, prints during, well, I don't know when he was born. We, we don't know when he was born, but um, he was active during the 1650s and his prints had been images of um, wildlife and animals and things. But this this print, it, there are nine images altogether um, and it shows the various stages of plague in London in 1665. So the first image, we see people in, in their sick beds um, and interestingly, there's a very female-driven mm. angle to, to, to that first plate that yes, we can get. Yes, of course, get. I hadn't noticed that. There's a, yes, there's lots of women in that. So, what, I mean, what you can see in that first image is, um, I mean, the, it's it's hard. You really do have to zoom in on these pictures. But you have two people in um, sick beds on either side of that first plate. And within the room, um, can you see, I mean, just looking at it, yeah. do you see what... Yes, you've got two beds, obviously draped, uh, people, someone sort of leaning out almost in agony. Um, then there's a, a number of things in the foreground, tables, chairs, implements on the table. Um, and that looks like a woman with a walking stick possibly, but there's definitely one, two, three women it looks like, and a figure in the door frame at the back. Um, that's, yeah. This is a very um, interesting representation of um, women during plague times. So you have two nurses in that room. You have two two people that are dead. Um, uh, sorry, one person that's very sick, one person that has died. You have a coffin in there. Oh, it's a coffin in the foreground, yeah. So you have two, two nurses, um, but also you have two searchers as well. Now, women would be the nurses. Um, women were always brought in to do that, and it was part of the plague orders that there would be two women um that would take on that role. But then the searchers would be women as well. And these searchers were responsible for checking the corpses of the dead to see what they had actually died from. And they were known by having these red, well, they were supposed to be red or white rods that they walked around with. And you can actually see this, that, this rod or staff that one of the women is holding there. Now, I am a big, big fan of um, The Handmaid's Tale. Mm. And it was only through watching The Handmaid's Tale that I started to rethink the way that these relationships might have worked between these women. We know that, I mean, searchers, we know that many searchers worked together for a number, number of years. We know that some of, you know, in some parishes there was a high turnover. But the interesting thing about The Handmaid's Tale is that you see that people are walking around in pairs and part of the reason they're doing it in pairs is that they can um, spy on one another and make sure that they're doing the work that they're supposed to be doing. So I think there's an element of that with, it, with these plague searchers as well because they were very susceptible to bribery. Um, they're not, I mean, there was lots of literature about how 
how awful these women were. I just, I don't think they all were awful, actually. Hmm. I think this was a part of a kind it's of smear a campaign. Job. And and I mean, they're presumably having to, so they're having to record causes of death as yeah. plague in order for them to be buried accordingly. Um, in, you, you mentioned that they're open to corruption. Is that say more why? why? Yeah, well, they, because if they go into one household and a person is found to have died of plague, the entire house has will be, be shut, shut up, up. Yeah. and everyone in it has to stay in there in quarantine for four weeks. Oh, sorry, for 40 days it is, not four weeks. Um, they have to stay in quarantine for that amount of time or until the last person is free from, from plague. So if somebody is found to have plague, then that's terrible. So they are susceptible for bribery. They, they, could, they could say that somebody had died from smallpox instead or they could say that somebody had died from, you know, something else. Um, but also they hold a lot of power because of this. Yeah. Um, so I do think there's, I mean, there have been a number of historians that have looked into the role of searchers. Um, I do think there's a lot more that we can say about these women. Also, the other thing is, the key thing, in, in my view, um, is that they are the ones that harvested the data that any plague historian uses oh, so right now. Oh, so it's all filtered through these female hands and these indeed. potentially unknown, possibly corrupt female yeah, hands. Yeah, and interest, oh. again, John Grant is this statistician that um, is around during the formative years of the Royal Society. He writes about plague, he tracks the process of plague throughout the 17th century and he says that searchers can't be trusted, which is... Quite frustrating because he actually bases all of his data and research on their statistics. And we're still doing so <laughs> up to this point. But to have an image that captures that so well, yeah. I think that is absolutely amazing. And again, you know, I can come to it, think, say what I see, but you've brought all this depth to it by having the context. So the, the female aspect's really important in there. But but actually, what it, it's part of a sequence. I find this really interesting because it is almost comic book-like. You know, you're moving through yeah. stages. It's it's progressing, but there is an order to it. I think the, there's a chaos in the the 1625 image of the skeleton. It's quite dramatic. It's quite chaotic. This has been structured very carefully to tell a story, hasn't it? Yeah, and I also think it's yeah, it's a way of controlling this the narrative of plague. So that's the first image. I won't spend as long with on all the rest, but um, the next image we see houses being shut up, um, and that's I mean. Everybody knows that that happened, and it did happen. Houses were shut up with a um, red mark on on the front of the door. And they looked like quite grand houses in this Yeah, they scene. do, I suppose. Mm. They do. Um, most of London was kind of ramshackle. I mean, the suburbs of London was kind of ramshackle with lots of tenants living in bizarre places within a house. Like, you'd have a, a nice orderly house, but then somebody would be living, like, on the side of it in a little shed, and that would be included in, you know the house yeah um so yeah these houses do look quite orderly um but then if we moved on to the next one we can see that um people have evacuated the city and you can see st paul's in the background there without old st paul's without its spire it, it broke about a hundred years before um, the great plague actually but um you can see people on in, in boats on the river and i think this is something that doesn't get spoken about that much actually the fact that people were actually living on the river for a mm. while because that was a way to keep out of out of the city. They believed that the city was infected, but if they were on the, the boats on the river, they were safe, which was obviously, well, obviously not, true. not true. But so that they, they are partly in transit, partly kind of fleeing the city yeah. on the, the river, but also potentially there's the idea that they're actually kind of seeking sanctuary on the water itself. Yeah, yeah, and and people people did do that. And then you can actually see talking about fleeing. You can see people fleeing the city. Um, going to the country and as well. Paul's again in the background there. Yeah. So there's this sort of 
idea that it's it's chronologically and geographically giving you almost like a panorama of the city. Isn't yeah, it? it's I suppose very that's clever. Right. Yeah. yeah, and they're fleeing on land. Um, and again, I mean, I suppose it, to me it looks quite orderly. They do. You know, <laughs> they're not. They're, they're not crowded compositions. They don't feel horrendously um, chaotic. Is that because this is retrospective? That this is something that's there's a document that it's supposed to to be a controlled piece of evidence? Well, it is a piece of evidence actually, because this image was um, it accompanies a, um, a a pamphlet which details plague throughout the seventeenth century. So it's talking about the statistics, the mortality s- statistics throughout the seventeenth century. So it's to show it is retrospective. It was printed in sixteen sixty six. Um, and there was a lot of material pumped out in 1666 about the plague of 1665. So yeah, it is. It's a. It's kind of a historic representation of of the the awful year that had preceded. Right. Um, but yeah. So then you move on. There's various images of people fleeing, but then also we've got um, depictions of people carrying coffins um, with their dead um, inside. Okay, so there's a narrative going on here, isn't there? In the first one, you've got the actual death beds. You've got the people being um, bricked up, walled in for their um, because the the illness has to incubate, has to go run through the household. Then you've got this idea of people fleeing, trying to get away from it before it gets them. And then you've got the poor unfortunates that have been got, haven't you? And then there's this sequence of sort of coffin-related images. Yeah, and then people being carried away in carts but then also um on the uh the seventh um plate which is on the bottom left hand side you can see people being buried um now i attended a, an interesting talk with somebody that was involved with crossrail and um traditionally the image and this is in part down to daniel defoe his fictionalized account of the plague that i mean he was a five-year-old boy during the plague and he was in the city but i you know, can barely remember things that happened when I was five. So, <laughs> uh, you know, it's probably rooted in testimony of re- his relatives, but it is fictionalised. Mm-hmm. Um, but he kind of puts forward this image of people kind of tumbling into plague pits and it all being disorderly. But what they found during the crossrail excavations is that people are actually put, um, even though they were mass burial pits, they were actually put down in a, a uniform way. There was evidence that they'd had um, burial shrouds around them as well. And you so can actually... burial shrouds and then put within a coffin and place Some them. put within coffins, but in an ordered way in terms of the, the positioning. And they were, you know, they weren't just, you, you didn't find arms and legs everywhere. They Absolutely, were just in, yeah. In, in neat lines. So it wasn't this sort of, oh, bring out your dead, yeah. chuck them in a hole. Yeah, yeah. it yeah. was much more ceremonial than that. Much more. And the idea that actually they're being buried in consecrated ground, you can mm-hmm. see the church there. And, and although they are big open pits, even in the image, you can sort of see them lined up, can't you? Yeah, yeah, you can see them. And you can also see that this, the, the image kind of supports the evidence that they've discovered um, during the, the crossrail excavations. But the parish churchyards became too full at a certain point. So they did have to look for consecrated ground elsewhere. And that's how the new churchyard was born, actually, in the 16th century. But they used it again during the Great Plague. And many people found themselves buried there in the end. There's actually a very sad, broken remnant of a gravestone that was discovered during the dig um, that belonged to a little girl called Mary Godfrey. And she died in 1665 of plague and her records are within the parish, her her death records are within the parish records and show that she died of plague. And Mm. so we have that kind of material evidence that's lasted. So, you know, 
people were creating gravestones. It may have been created many years after the plague, who knows, but, you know, there was still respect for the dead. And actually, um, when you move on to the, the eighth image, you can see a funeral procession there. Now, this is this would have been a luxury for somebody to have an actual, you know, funeral because people weren't allowed to attend funerals. Um, that was part of the law, um, the, the plague orders. You weren't allowed to, to oh, attend the really? funerals what, of your loved of, ones. Because of concern of, of contamination, people gathering yep. together in a space. Gosh! Yeah, and that was a very painful thing for the population at the time because, of course, again, deeply religious society. There's um, one writer called Thomas Clark who actually wrote a testimony from being in quarantine, which is the only one that, um, that we have from that time. Um, and he writes about how the fact that you weren't allowed to attend people's funerals was like a second death mm. um, because you didn't have those, you know, those traditions that, that, that would normally that would normally occur. Well, there's all there's there's all these associations of uh, you know, the idea of the salvation of the soul through the last rites. Yeah. The idea of, you know, again, witnessing the burial. It's it's a closure, as we can yeah. call it now. Yeah. But that that's incredible. And again, I think it's one of the things we forget about with with the amount of deaths you're talking about, 100,000 in such a sh- short space of time, society must have gone upside down and any traditional burial practices, including this sort of very elaborate funereal ritual you can see here, must have gone out the window. So presumably this is fantastical then. It's, it's, it's not. I mean, there would have been instances of these funerals taking place. Um, there was one funeral um, of... A captain of the the Royal Navy. He died not of plague, um, but he died during plague time, and he was buried within a parish that was rife with plague at the time. The parish church um, was the place that his young daughter had been buried before, so he wanted to be buried there. His wife was not able to attend, um, none of his immediate family attended, but he did have people attend his funeral. Now he didn't die from plague, but it was still you know a funeral that happened and people attended. So there were rare occasions when this when this did happen. On other occasions, people um, defied these plague orders and went to the funerals of their loved ones anyway. Or, you know, there's instances in Pepys' diary of people um, escaping their houses, being shut up to go and uh, follow the burial of their loved ones and stuff. So, well, Because there's the human instinct for, for grieving, but, but also, as you say, the, the religious implications of having to do this formally. So much must have been sped up. Um, there must have been shortcuts taken just to dispose of the large numbers of bodies that were being. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's it's a horrible thought. And what's so interesting talking to you, Rebecca, but also looking at these images, is how vividly it comes to life, actually. And we sort of hear these big words: Black Death, Plague, sixty six six, Great Fire, and and they're they're big iconic historical moments, but they're affecting people on such a deep human level and on a cultural level and on an ideological level that we take that for granted sometimes how how cataclysmic these things could be yeah and i think that's what drives my research i love researching people individuals i love those stories and when you, when it comes to the great plague of 1665 you have so many individual stories like one of the most heartbreaking things that i um had to go through in researching the book and researching the plague was actually going through the parish burial re- registers and you see the name, the same surname cropping up again and again and again on the same pages until you have um, no one, it's literally written no one, child of 
X, you know, because the whole family has died and nobody knows the name of the child. And it's so, it's so, so sad. And, you know, 350 years separates us from, from, well, 351, um, 352 actually now. no, it's 353. So anyway. <laughs> <laughs> he lost a few years. Yeah. Oh, age, it gets <laughs> us all. Um, but, you know, so much time separates us from, from then. And, and But still, these these stories are so, so raw. And it's a pleasure when you're a historian and you will be fully aware of this, when you're able to, to find stories that have been that have just been left for, for decades or hundreds of years and you can pull them out and shine a light on them and actually give an extra bit of life to, to that person, if you know, if you can. And I think that that's a, tr- a trend that we're seeing increasingly in history, which I, I think is a very, very good thing. We're not just studying the big kings, queens, battles, events, dates. We're trying to get to human stories a lot more now, I think, mm. in our research. And, I mean, I'm, I'm so interested in what you're doing. I've, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. We've talked at length. And um, I want to say a massive thank you. If people want to follow you on Twitter, how do they find you? Uh, I am at Rebecca Radil on Twitter. And mm-hmm. um, everything is actually on there. So, yeah, follow me. Please do. And <laughs> just give one more plug for your amazing book, because it is an amazing book. Oh, thank you. Um, it's 1666, Plague, War and Hell fire yeah you're you're such a star i love the research you're doing and i just want to keep listening out for more discoveries that you're coming up with such a pleasure talking to you rebecca oh thank you for having me Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.